the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence by the military-industrial complex. Are the Bible's prophecies today's reality? This could be the sign that signals the return of Christ. World leaders are working behind the curtains. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. Secret societies, secret oaths. Now, get ready for an hour of truth that will make you think. We'll examine Bible prophecy and see how close we are to the return of Jesus Christ for His church. You're in the zone. Politics, Israel, the Middle East, the revised European superstate, and more. All in the zone. This is the Prophecy Zone with your host, Phil Armstrong. today. We are covering slowly the book of Revelation here, and currently we are up to Revelation chapter 14. I labeled the topic of today's study the Armageddon question. Um, Actually, we'll get to that a little bit later. We have a few parts of chapter 14 of Revelation that we need to introduce first before we can start on the War of Armageddon. Got some interesting things that I think I've, uh, that I can conclude that go beyond or maybe even against traditional teachings of men that um, the saints come on the white horses at the time of Armageddon. The more I think about that and the more I study it, the more I feel that that is not when we come back with Christ on the horses. It's actually after this. So we'll kind of, um, start in first on Revelation chapter 14, and then we'll finish up with the Battle of Armageddon and give you some perspective as to how this could happen using a more literal translation of the book of Revelation. The first five verses in Revelation chapter 14 kind of cover the under the 144,000. Actually, I hit on this in my shows that I did last late last year on who the 144,000 were. This is one chapter in Revelation here that skips all around the timeline. Um, this is what makes Revelation frustrating to understand it. It talks about the 144,000. It talks the Battle of Armageddon. It talks about the great city of Babylon, that it's fallen. And we haven't even got into explaining that yet. What is the battle? What is the city of Babylon? That's in chapter 18. So this is one of these chapters that kind of just touches on a little bit of everything, but yet is important because if you study it and you piece it together, you can kind of pull other parts of the Bible to it to make it understandable. So that's what I'm going to do with you on this study. Uh, The end of the chapter of 14 describes the slaughtering of the armies at Armageddon. 
So actually, in my book here, I titled Chapter 14 of Revelation, The Introduction to the End. Um, it just gives a brief outline of the next events that tie up the remainder of the tribulation period. So the first few verses start with 144,000. I'm going to start with 14, verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of the water. During the tribulation period, the Antichrist and his mark have been revealed, and last week's show we talked about the false prophet and this mark. Uh, We know that the false prophet false prophet will force everybody to worship the antichrist but even at this point god allows the gospel of truth to be made known as a last ditch effort to save man notice that the angel uses a very loud voice shouting fear god give god the worship not the antichrist and then he describes which god it is which god is the correct one Because remember, the Antichrist sets himself up in the temple at that three-and-a-half-year point or halfway through the tribulation period and claims to be God. So the angel is clear here. Worship the one who created all things. Now, I don't think that this is actually a voice that we as people on the earth below hear. I think this is a voice of the saints. It could be the 144,000. Part of the reason why the 144,000 are mentioned earlier in the chapter. It could be the two witnesses that are shouting this message. But regardless, it is very clear to those living on the earth that the gospel is being proclaimed as a last-ditch effort. It is a warning as well. God's wrath is about to be poured out in the seven bowls. Now, the seven bowls we're going to touch on next week, so I hope you can turn into the show next week as I go through a more literal translation as to what an unbeliever will go through with the seven bowls of wrath. Notice that God's patience is becoming very short at this point. Um, I do believe that the rapture is about to occur, and I am not a pre-trib believer, but you know what? That's not an issue. Um, This is one thing I do not wish to argue at this point. Let's just go through the idea here that there are believers on the earth at the time of this point. We'll notice that in a few of the verses that come up here. Whether it's the first wave of believers that I feel uh, Christians and believers will go through a portion of the tribulation period, But if you feel that we don't, that your church is gone at this point, that's fine. Let's focus then on the second wave of believers as some people feel that there is a second chance. Revelation 14, verse 8. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. Now remember what adultery is in the eyes of God. It is the worship of something or someone else. Obviously, this is uh, more than one, adulteries. So obviously it's the worship of the Antichrist that's infuriating our Lord. 
but it's also, I'm sure, the worship of images which the Antichrist has set up. Now, we will study in better detail the fall of Babylon later. Here is the angel predicting the fall, and I believe Babylon is Rome, telling the people of the earth that the great city of Rome will be destroyed. And notice that it is from this place, Rome, that the rush to worship other gods or the rush to worship something else, to commit adultery in the eyes of God, comes from this area, comes from this point. Verse 9, a third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. First of all, this is where I really struggle with today's churches. Yes, we do have a God of love. Yes, God is patient. Yes, God is kind. Yes, his grace is for everybody. But you know, we have to do equal proportion here. We've got to warn people that if you go against the will of God, he will show his wrath to you. And if you go back to the God of the Old Testament, he showed it often, not only to his own people of of Israel, but he also showed it to the heathen nations around Israel. Do we worship the same God today? Absolutely. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And this is probably why a lot of Christians will not touch the book of Revelation. This is why many churches will not preach on Revelation. It's too damning. It's too hard to take. God is too angry. God mentions the wrath and the lake of burning sulfur and and doing all these horrible things to mankind and they eliminate the book of Revelation from their studies and from their preaching and I believe that that is wrong. However, on the opposite hand, if you focus too much on Revelation and you focus too much on the wrath of God, you lose on his love and his grace. So, Please keep in mind that there must be a balance as God is both just and fair. Every part, and going back to the verse 9 here, every part of Revelation that speaks of the mark of the Antichrist or the mark of the beast, the act of worship is also mentioned. The two must go together. You cannot accept the mark on your hand or your forehead and then change your mind about worshiping the Antichrist. What I'm trying to say here, and the Bible is very clear, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives the mark, the two go together. This is, I believe, something set up by God to make it a foolproof measure that you cannot take the mark and then pretend to worship God. Um, you cannot, let's say, worship the Antichrist and then not take the mark. The two go hand in hand together. They must, and, and this is where I, I really feel strongly about 
the idea, and I love my seventh day at Venice, brothers and sisters, but they believe that the mark of the beast is the worship on Sunday. But notice how it's separated here. The mark is a physical mark and the worship of the beast. These are two separate acts, but yet go together. And I believe it is an error of the Seventh-day Adventists that they actually combine the two. But uh, in, throughout Revelation, it is a separate, both a separate act. Whatever is the choice here, ignorance is not going to be excuse. You do the act. Hello? Hey, how's it going? Brent, get off. You have to. I'm on the radio. Brent. I apologize. That was my son. <laughs> oh, man, my goodness. I apologize. You cannot take the mark without doing the act. And if you do these, the wrath of God is going to be poured out. Notice that the cup is already filling. Revelation 14, verse 10. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast and his image, for anyone who receives the mark of his name. Now you would think that this promise would turn everyone to the Lord. A decision to worship something or someone else made in the split second obviously causes an eternity of torment. But it's amazing how many, if not most, will follow this Antichrist and take his mark. Again, God gives us a warning. If you do it, this is what's going to happen to you. Revelation 14, verse 12. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. Okay, here we have a message of hope. He is saying, hang in there. It is on the shoulders of the believers to stay committed. It is up to them. This calls for patience and endurance on the part of the saints. This is up to us. This is up to the believers to stay committed, to obey that first and great commandment, which is what? You shall have no other gods before me. Revelation 14, verse 13. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit. They will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. Here is proof that believers are alive before the rapture occurs, which I believe will be just before the pouring out of the bowls of wrath. They will have gone through an incredible amount of persecution. Satan is at the end of his rope, and he knows that. And I believe that the persecution will peak right before the rapture. For the tortured saint, all the physical and mental anguish that this person has endured for the cause and belief in Jesus Christ will not be forgotten from God. Their deeds will follow them. What are these deeds? Endurance, faithfulness, proclaiming the truth to others. I'm sure there will be umpteen amount of examples of, of just plain heroship 
from those believers who helped pull others through, those whose faith was getting weak due to the persecution. Um, I'm sure we will hear many, many times of the martyrs that have died as a result of the persecution by the Antichrist. Now let me remind the person who listens to me now, you will be able to wave a palm branch of victory. You will be able to wear a white robe, stand before the throne of God with all others like yourself, and you will receive a crown that no one will take away. Keep this in mind that despite persecution that's coming, just keep strong. If anything, that is your blessed hope. You do have a place prepared for you. The next few verses detail the rapture in another way. In Revelation 14, we talk about here, uh, just before the bowls are being poured out, that we now have the cloud part that becomes apparent. I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like the Son of Man, with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Keep that image in your mind. Then another angel came out of the temple in a loud voice and said to him who was seated on the cloud, Take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. This is unmistakable that the one seated on the cloud is Jesus Christ. Now, this is not describing the coming of Christ at the Battle of Armageddon. This is different. Jesus appears here on a cloud. He arrives with his saints to conquer the Antichrist and Satan on a white horse. Now, that's not Armageddon either. That's actually called the Great Supper of the Lamb. But what is described here is the rapture. The clue is the cloud. We've got three verses here that point this out. Luke 21, verse 27. At the time they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with great power and glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up, lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. That's the rapture. It's about to happen. Mark 13, verse 26. At the same time, men will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. He will send out his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the earth to the other. Again, the rapture. First Thessalonians 4, verse 17. After that, we are who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with him, guess where, in the clouds. So these are three evidences that the rapture occurs with Christ coming on a cloud. He comes with a judgment. It's a sickle in his hand that shows that. But he does not come to harvest grapes. That is left to the next angel. Keep that also in mind. Christ is coming here to get the wheat. The parable in Matthew 13 tells of the wheat and the tares and what becomes of the weeds. The wheat, or the believers, are gathered in while the weeds are bundled and thrown in the fire. Here now is the parallel that we see between the parable in Matthew 13 and in Revelation here. Let me go through that parable here. And it's in Matthew 13, starts at verse 24. The kingdom of heaven is like a farmer sowing good seed in his field. But one night as he slept, his enemy came and sowed thistles among the wheat. 
When the crop began to grow, the thistles grew too. The farmer's workers came and told him, Sir, the field where you had planted that choice seed is full of weeds. An enemy has done it, he explained. Can we pull out the thistles or the weeds, they asked. No, he said, you'll hurt the wheat if you do. Let both grow together until the harvest, and I will tell the reapers to sort out the thistles and burn them and put the wheat in the barn. Can you understand now that this is the reason why Christ is coming back with the sickle? He's at this point going to harvest the wheat. The unbelievers are infiltrated with the believers. Now, this is a whole other thing in itself. How did the seed of the unbeliever get put into the soil? Well, that's a whole other story. I won't get into that today. But obviously, upon the earth, there's the wheat and there's the weeds. There is no difference. There is no third one. It's like the sheep and the goats. They must be separated. And that's why the sickle comes out here. Revelation 14, verse 17. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel had the charge of fire, came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle. Take your sickle and gather the cluster of grapes. Now, it's something different from the earth's vine because its grapes are ripe. Now, two angels here are mentioned, one to gather in the grapes and one to bring the fire. Now go back to the parable of the wheat and the tares, or the wheat and the thistles. Fire is being prepared to burn the weeds. But the squishing of the grapes and the wine press also occurs as judgment. And this is where I believe that the unbelievers give a double blow of punishment. It is one for the blow of the squishing of the grapes, and another one for the burning of the thistles. Revelation 14, verse 20. They were trampled in the wine press outside the city, and the blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as horses' bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. Now, this verse here, this is where it jumps around here again in Revelation 14. Let's go back to... Verse 9, Revelation 19, verse 13. It is describing Christ as he is coming on the white horse. Now, this happens later. Revelation 19, verse 13, it says, He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Now notice, Christ's robes are dirtied, they're soiled, they're dipped like they were dipped in blood. He is treading the wine press. The other saints, right, or the armies of heaven following him have clean. They're dressed in white linen, fine linen, and clean. They are not dirty. People, we don't take part of the war of Armageddon. Christ does that himself. Now, how does this verse back in Revelation 14, verse 20, tie into this? It is both spiritual and literal. Let's start with the spiritual first. The grapes are unbelievers who the angel just threw into the wine press. 
The wine press represents the place of judgment where the grapes and the unbelievers are still intact or whole. Now, things get really gross here. And it's kind of difficult to explain the horror of the scene. But when grapes are crushed, crushed, juice or the wine, actually wine comes later, but the juice flows out of the fruit. The Bible does not say that it's wine, though. It says it's blood. Now this brings out the literal explanation. You cannot do this any other way. It makes no sense to lighten this explanation to make it a good feeling. It is disgusting here. But God is just and holy. The wine press is located outside of Jerusalem in the Valley of Megiddo, which is also known as the Valley of Jezreel. It's also known as the Plain of Estralon or Armageddon. Now, the name Armageddon comes from the Hebrew word meaning slaughter or to cut off. If you were to look at a picture of the valley, valley of Megiddo, it is a large expanse of farmland and agricultural fields. It is actually nestled between two mountain ranges. You can visit there today. There are many tourist sites that will take you there. And if you look, there are no homes or cities located for miles and miles and miles along this oval stretch, oval stretch of land. Now, this is where the nations of the earth will gather, and we'll get into this a little bit later as we move into the bowls. But the nations of the earth will gather here with the kings who are tricked by the demons that come out of the mouth of the Antichrist, the dragon, and the false prophet. These people are the ones who followed and worshipped the beast. This gathering at Armageddon will exceed 200 million people, but it's not all the people of the world. This is the choicest few to fight. We know this, that this army here comes from the east, so there's a many, many others who are not taking part of this. So this gives you a clue here that the Battle of Armageddon is not the final battle. Another thing you need to keep in mind and look at this, the Battle of Armageddon does not include the Antichrist. It does not include the false prophet. That all happens later. Now, let's get into this idea. Put this into your mind. The Valley of Megiddo, 200 million plus people. It is nestled in between two mountain ranges. And if it hadn't rained for three and a half years, the ground is hard. Now, it is in God's plan that these people are to be pressed by the wrath of God. I believe that this occurs at the pouring out of the last bowl, the falling of the hailstones that weigh 100 pounds each. I believe that is how Jesus Christ tramples the wine press. Come on, his big feet do not you know, crush the earth. I mean, no, that's not the metaphor that Revelation is trying to explain. Jesus will be crushing the grapes in the wine press by a phenomenon of nature. And if that's the 100-pound hailstones, that would probably do it. If this 200-million-man army is camped between two mountain ranges, 
there is not a lot of place to go to hide. You've got too many people in one small place. You've got too many grapes in one, I don't know, what do they call the uh, cistern? Uh, What do they use to... uh, what do they call that when you stamp the, the grapes with your feet? And you got to go back to old ways of making wine, too. That was done by feet. It was the best way to squish grapes by using the full body weight rather than doing it with hands or with stones. They would do it with the feet. So let's go back now to Revelation 14, verse 20. The blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as horses' bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. You do the calculation. The average person holds six quarts of blood. You times that by 200 million human bodies in one given area. How much blood is bled out onto the ground? You know what? God gives us the answer for that. The blood flows to the height of a horse's bridle, which would make it three to four feet deep. The river would be the length of 180 miles and the width as wide as the valley itself. That is almost exact to the length of the valley of Megiddo in actual mileage, but also the fact that that water or that blood, sorry, it's the blood the wine would actually run 180 miles. I need explain no more. It sounds grotesque, but you know what? It's God's word, and I believe we can take it literally. My name again is Christine White. You can reach me at 888-653-9752. My email is explainthis at net, and I hope you send me a message. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>